0: and welcome to Amor Markets today. My name is Ana Paula Picasso. So as we are halfway through 2022, I selected a few clips of episodes featured so far this year. I decided for the first one to turn my focus to Africa and I grouped three clips from episodes where we talk about different sectors and innovative companies within the African continent. The first clip is from the episode called Unleashing the Power of Data in Emerging Markets where I interviewed Joseph Rutakawa, the co-founder of Roazi and Joseph told me why this is so important for emerging markets why data is so important for emerging markets, economic development not just in the public sector but also in the private sector So I'm here with Joseph Rutakawa, the founder of Ruazi. They provide organizations with fresh on-the-ground data for markets across sub-Saharan Africa to facilitate effective decision-making. I'm reading this out from your website, which I thought was really good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The reason I wanted to invite you here is I came across... An article about Razi and yourself on Median and about how data is so important and how you saw this massive, massive gap, especially in Africa for data. And also reminds me of the time long time ago, probably 12 years ago, when I was in London, I worked for a market research company and I was in charge of research about Brazil. In those days, Brazil was the economy was booming. There was a lot of interest of investors and companies that wanted to know more about the Brazilian market. But it was a big so difficult to find data, so like consumer data, how much people were spending in supermarkets, things like that. And I'm guessing it's probably the same in Africa too. I know it's a pretty obvious question for us. But why is data so important?
1: Yes. Um, well, uh, thank you so much for having me um, in this podcast. Uh, first of all, and I'm glad that you came across Wazi um, online. Um, so yes, um, data is um, really important, mainly when it comes to decision making at any level, right? So I'll start with the um, you know the most obvious part, which is governments. So governments, uh, governments. Africa is developing. Um, is you know one of the uh, the ends on the developing country scale. Uh, country scale has the most of them, and um, if you look at you know their contribution in the global economy is like two percent. Um, you know total GDP of all African countries. Um, but now, if, for governments they would need to know where to invest the, um, you know, limited funds that they have access to. Um, and you can't know where to invest if you don't have um, accurate on ground data to track, um, you know, the return on investment in real time, right? Um, so what happens mostly is you find that um, governments are investing blindly um, and based on, you know, experience from the last decades or or based on what they're seeing in other countries, like, you know, what's happening in Asia um, and, and South America, rather than using the on-ground data in their own geographies to see what's actually relevant, right? <clears throat> so without this, they're just doing blindly, right? And on the other hand, you also have um, non-governmental organizations and, and other development agencies. They, you know, pump in aids in these developing countries, but they don't have on-ground data to assess whether the aids um, actually had the positive outcome that they were looking for, whether it's socially, economically, um, or otherwise, environmentally or otherwise. So even on the aid part, it becomes you know spending aid money and not actually getting the results. And the, you know what they do currently is. They depend on governments to give them the results, but then governments forge the results so that they could get more AIDS and so forth. So nothing is actually turning into, um, like you don't get the return on the AIDS investment, if you may, uh, because you don't have on-ground data. When it comes to businesses, um, businesses, you know, it's it's a misconception that because, you know, countries have a low um, economic output uh, you'd assume that there isn't a big business opportunity, but it's actually the opposite because for developing countries, most of the products and services don't exist, right? So it's actually an easier ground for business because you only have to copy paste what has um, what's being sold in developed countries, right? Whether it's tech products or consumer products, like physical products and so forth. But then how do you then enter these markets and how do you then... Um, you know, know what uh, what to sell, how to sell it, how much to sell it. So I, I'll take an example of consumer products, uh, as you mentioned, right? So you have a lot of you have big um, you know uh, countries that are coming up fast. You know, you have Nigeria, um, you have uh, you know East African countries like uh, Uganda um, and so forth. But then what you what what's not the same in Africa is that. Um, the rising, the, having a rising middle class in Africa does not translate to people buying products in supermarkets or modern trade outlets, and 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 does not translate to people buying certain products that you'd assume middle class people would buy, right? But then without data, you'd you know copy paste the model that has worked in developed countries. For instance, middle class, the, you know, the, the typical middle class person in Africa who drives, who has like two cars and and so forth, buys. Uh, products in the local retail outlets, which are not supermarkets. Um, they go to drink. They don't go to a fancy bar. They go to a pub, a local pub. Um, so they don't spend their entertainment. They don't go to movie theaters. They don't spend, they go. They don't visit malls and so forth. So if you're a consumer product company, you don't want to <coughs> run your promotions and place your products in in what they call modern trade outlets. You want to follow these guys' in their neighborhoods, in, you know, local shops that look shabby, but then that's, when, that's, that's where actually products move, right? And on top of it, you actually would think that uh, middle-class um, consumers are the ones who spend the most, but no. Um, the low-class consumers, for instance, we've done data for, um, you know, the alcohol industry, the, the cigarette industry. Low-class consumers are the ones who spend the most on alcohol, <laughs> the ones who spend the most on, on cigarettes, and so forth. So without on-ground data on, you know, specific consumer behavior in target geographies, you wouldn't know how actually people behave and what moves to make, right? To enter these markets and succeed.
0: Then the second episode or the second clip is from the episode empowering artisan communities with financial inclusion, where I interviewed Eric Oswara the founder of AFOMA, the Goodwill Token. He wanted to empower artisans and small businesses in different African communities. So he started Selitic, a more financial inclusive e-commerce marketplace using a crypto token called AFOMA. And this episode is a very special episode. Lots of different things, international trade, Challenges in cross-border payments, financial inclusion. So to talk about that, I invited Eric Ozuora. He's the founder of a former the Goodwill Token, but much more, isn't it, Eric?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. I wanted to um, create um, other opportunities where we can actually fund humanitarian projects across the globe. And um, that led me down the path of um, Aforma, right? And um, what we started doing, or what I started doing, was I started doing a bit of a research um, into how I can actually enable a platform where we're not just throwing money at the problem, but we are finding ways to break the cycle of poverty, which means enabling communities, uh, empowering communities and individuals. So I stumbled upon, um, uh, during my research, an article that, points to the fact where um, 65% of um, the global handicraft market comes from developing countries. But However, we still see a lot of these artisans um, are not recognized for their work, and they are not uh, properly compensated, and they still remain in poverty.
0: The cross-border uh, payment system I know is very expensive even here in Europe and Canada I guess it's the same for you to send money uh, for you to pay for goods or services from another country and why did you cho- I know it sounds pretty obvious for uh, for you and me but why did you choose a token why did you choose to use utility token for someone that is not too familiar? With the utility token, what a utility token is, is, is works almost like a cryptocurrency. It uses, uh, the blockchain technology, which is decentralized, immutable and, and secure. So, but it's not a cryptocurrency. It's not like Bitcoin. You can use within the platform, the, within the Afoma marketplace. So why did you choose that instead of just, um, yeah, let's just use Fiat money, use PayPal or any other well-known cross-border payment systems?
2: Well, Anna, you already covered that, right? It is expensive, right? And um, <laughs> it is expensive. It is a legacy technology. I-, I have to be honest with you. We need to be looking forward to the future. Um, it is not a sustainable payment system, if we continue to leverage the um, uh, payment systems that we have. Yes, it is beneficial at this, at this stage of where we are currently in the uh, when it comes to payment systems, but we need to look forward to the future. It is expensive. It is not efficient. Um, and um, it, it has other challenges that comes with it, right? Now, when we look at the option of why are we looking at leveraging our utility token or leveraging blockchain or cryptocurrencies, is because purely based on the fact that we want our artisans to earn a significant chunk of their profit. So imagine in a situation whereby an artisan is selling a product for $30 and someone buys that product, and then we have to pay the artisan for the product that he or she put out. Um, By the time we are probably sending that money back to the artisan, they're already probably losing $2, $3, $4, um, in fact, um, it, just recently, we were looking at doing our pilot um, testing um, because our vision is real about paying, getting our artisans money in the US dollar, right? Um, so we were looking at trans- transferring um, a um, um, dollars to our artisan on a payment uh, platform. And he was looking at us because they are based off in Africa, right, for one, and they, um, they, we want to send that money in US dollar. Um, the pl- payment platform was asking us or would be billing us almost close to $40 to make that transaction happen, right? Now, that's one up, off type of um, method that we were looking at sending that money. There are other payment platforms that are way, way cheaper than that. But at the end of the day, you're probably going to be paying close to, depending on the amount of money you're sending, you're probably going to be looking at $2, $3. But when you leverage the technology we have today around uh, leveraging blockchain uh, uh, um, uh, to do that, you're probably looking at a transaction fee of zero point something percent, right? First of all, if you're using a crypto payment gateway, right? And then the, the network fee, depending on the blockchain network you are on, you're talking about fractions of a dollar, right? So by the time you have the money um, you are getting out to these artisans who are impacted in, within the regions that, where, they, where, they are, where they exist, um, they are at least getting um, a significant portion of their profit margin right rather than you eating into that profit margin and they, it's something where because it's more of a peer to peer transaction they tend to get that money quicker rather than sitting down three days to do a wire transfer or four days to get to do a wire transfer it is not it's not sustainable in the in the in the traditional sense of conducting commerce right? The last clip is
0: from what tech innovation really looks like in emerging markets, where I interviewed Max Cuvillier. he's the head of mobile for development at GSMA, and we talked about one of the examples of innovation that don't make big headlines. Uh, we talked about a startup called Twiga Foods from Kenya that is simplifying the supply chain between fresh fruit producers through a b2b e-commerce platform and i'll link all the full episodes in the show notes so just head to the description and you see the links there and don't forget to check out immersionmarkets.today where you can read more content and don't forget to follow this podcast wherever you are listen to your podcasts right now. I'm here with Max cuvelier He's the head of mobile for development at GSMA and also he's a, the co-founder of Africa The Big Deal and is a newsletter and a deals database. Hi Max! Hi, how are you? Good, welcome to Emerge Markets today but today I want to I want to focus in startups in tech companies as well, but now in the fintech sector, we picked out three examples. So the first example, do you want to introduce them?
3: Absolutely. I'll uh, maybe I'll start with Twigger Foods. I'll try. I'll try and uh, and do a good job in explaining what they do. Obviously, they would be doing it uh, much better than. Uh, uh, than me, but we've been uh, following them and working with them for six or seven years now, so uh, got a decent understanding of at least their initial business model because we can come to that. But they've they've changed a little bit. And Twiga Foods, they are from which country? From Kenya. Their operations are mostly based in Nairobi, uh, so the capital, and outside of Nairobi. And so, what what do they do? Um, I like I like always to start with the problem. So basically, what they realized is that there were. Um, massive inefficiencies in terms of the flows and deliveries of fresh fruits and vegetables to Nairobi, the capital. Um, I, think, I think there are about 100,000 little food stall owners in, uh, in Nairobi for which most of the population gets access to buy their fruit and their vegetables, like mangoes, bananas, but also onions, tomatoes, and so on. And basically how it works is that those stall owners – they have to go in the morning to one of the main markets in Nairobi. There are, I think, about 15 or 16 of them. And when they go there, they buy the fruit and vegetable they think they will be able to sell for the day. Um, they have no bargaining power, as you can imagine, because they're really small. They have no control over the quality either. They just buy at the price that they're given them. And I'm guessing everything happens with cash. Um, yes, I mean yes and no. I mean a, a lot of the payments, I would say, probably happened already with mobile money, with M-Pesa in particular, because of the prevalence of mobile money in uh, in uh, in Kenya, in in particular, which is one of the strongholds of mobile money. But we'll come back to this point because it's actually quite interesting what you get by uh, by adding in digital payments.
0: Yeah, I remember M-Pesa. So I think what well, the case with Kenya is slightly different in a way. Um, because they started
3: how long ago with pay like ten years or... fifteen years ago so so that's what's happening in Nairobi, but the reality is most of the fruit and vegetable come from Kenya, from not so far from Nairobi to three hundred kilometers for instance and so on the other hand you've got the farmers who have obviously no direct access to the market in Nairobi and usually sell to intermediaries who then sell to other intermediaries and so on until um, the food, the the, the produce reaches the, those main markets in Nairobi. The inefficiencies and uh, kind of the, the little cuts that everybody takes along the way translates into basically the farmers getting um, very low prices for their produce on, on that end. And on the other end, the like, consumers, the, uh, the, the inhabitants of Nairobi, end up paying, for instance, for their bananas almost as much as someone would pay if they buy their bananas in Tesco in London. Wow. Even though that banana in Tesco has flown usually thousands or, or taking a boat for thousands of miles, those bananas are produced in Nairobi, outside of Nairobi, but with all the inefficiencies in the chain, basically end up costing as much as a banana that's fl- that flies around the world. So they, what, they, what they did is they rebuilt the whole chain by working directly with the farmers on one side and directly with the stall owners on the other side. So they removed all the intermediaries in the middle. What it needs is obviously a very strong management of the supply chain between the two. So you're able to identify what the needs are in, the, uh, in Nairobi and, uh, and where the offer is outside of Nairobi in the rural areas. But they've done that very, uh, very efficiently. They started with a, a couple, a couple crops, and then they grew to more. Now they're also uh, building an offering around more um, FMCGs. Um, but really, everything they're always doing is to try and make sure that by removing inefficiencies, you get better price for the producer and better price for the consumer. At the same time, you also manage the quality better uh, because you have a view across the the whole, the whole line and on top of that, if you digitize payments across the value chain, you build something that's extremely fluid and, um, and efficient for all the different players.